Kozo Zambo. You're listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a platform to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Lodin Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month in Thimpo. I'm Karma Punso, the host for the conversations, and our guest today is Tenzin Yuntin, the co-founder and the director of Royal Thimpo College. We will discuss education and enterprise in Bhutan. This dialogue has three parts. Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of the United Nations in Bhutan, will introduce the session, followed by my conversation with the guest. The session ends with a Q&A with the audience. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. COVID-19 will cause great disruptions to the global economy, and Bhutan will not be an exception. At such a time, we must exhibit the strength that comes out of our smallness, remain united, and support one another. During such exceptional circumstances, the government will take the responsibility of alleviating any suffering to the people due to the virus. His Majesty the King. Kuzuzongbola, welcome to your UN House and to the 26th session of Bhutan Dialogues. In the face of COVID-19, like the rest of the world, we in Bhutan are facing big challenges. On behalf of Loden and the United Nations, I would like to commend the people of Bhutan, the royal government, but especially those frontline workers within the Ministry of Health and various NGOs who are working to alleviate the challenges that people are facing day to day. Also, we have, together with the Loden Foundation, started to stream, live stream Bhutan Dialogues through Facebook today. Our topic today is Reflections on Education and Enterprise in Bhutan. We are fortunate to have an incredibly insightful speaker in Tenzin Yonten, who is the co-founder and first director of the Royal Temple College. He has a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MBA from Yale University. Some people may be surprised to know that he interned at the World Bank in Washington. Our host, Dr. Karma Fonso, as you are aware, is the founder of Loden Foundation that supports the development of a vibrant culture of entrepreneurship here in Bhutan. Loden has supported 167 active young entrepreneurs throughout this country. We are fortunate that both Tenzin Yonten and Dr. Karma Fonso are on the task force helping to formulate Bhutan's 21st century economic roadmap in concert with the Royal Bhutan government. My closing, if I may suggest everyone following the discussion today to please drop your questions in the chat box. We are very capably supported by Kinga and Sering to take on board your questions, which will ensure that they will be finding the right way to get them answered. And with, without further ado, let me hand over to Dr. Carmen Tenzin. Welcome to the 26th session of Bhutan Dialogues and our first session going uh, online 
since our last dialogue, the uh, COVID-19 um, virus has spread across the world and has uh, uh, created a great deal of inconveniences. We are all uh, facing many different kinds of struggles. We live in challenging times. But such precarious times also keeps us on our toes, makes us uh, think of smart, bold, prompt thoughts and actions. So uh, here at Bhutan Dialogues, that's what we aspire to do, to make people think, to promote this culture of thinking and smart actions. And uh, uh, from what I have known of you uh, in the past few years, you are truly a man of uh, incisive thoughts, articulate in speech and words, and very effective actions. So it's a great pleasure for us to have you as a guest for our first online session. In the past sessions, we have also seen uh, a good attendance from RTC students, particularly international students. And uh, this time, finally, we are really pleased to have the director as our guest. And uh, what we often do is we begin by asking our guest to share a bit about his or her background so that the audience, the live audience in this case, would know where you're coming from. We'd like to know what made you who you are today. Uh, if you could share from your very rich life the main outstanding sort of events and uh, experiences you had that shaped you. What major milestones in your life have made you who you are? Yes, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Karma. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Uh, thank you to uh, the staff out here coming on this day. Uh, very happy to be here uh, to share what uh, I know. Uh, if I uh, say a bit about myself, uh, basically I started my uh, education. Uh, I was sent out at a, a very young age. I must have been, I guess, around five probably to kindergarten in Darjeeling. Uh, two years in kindergarten, ten years at uh, St. Joseph's uh, North Point. Uh, which is a fantastic institution uh, run by Jesuits. I think I uh, learned a tremendous amount there and, and very proud to be a North Pointer. Um, I think the, uh, what we learned has stayed with us uh, throughout our lives. After finishing there, I uh, came back to Bhutan, Sherapsi, uh, two years, uh, finished high school there, and then I got a scholarship and went to uh, Cal Berkeley, where I studied uh, mechanical engineering. Um, and that was also a hugely transformative uh, experience uh, during that time. It was the, my first time getting, you know, after finishing high school, first time getting on a plane, visiting foreign countries, and then to get to a hotbed of liberalism like, like Berkeley. It was, mm -hmm. uh, it was eye-opening, uh, very transformative, but uh, I think uh, I learned so much from there. And I think that has shaped a lot of uh, my thinking and, and uh, who I am today. Uh, after I came back, um, joined the civil service in uh, 1993, I joined the Department of Power, although I was from a mechanical engineering background. My first place of work was at uh, Bergana, uh, up the valley, uh, and later on I was uh, a project manager in the first rural electrification project that was funded by ADB. So I spent about uh, six, seven years almost, uh, and then uh, a few other assignments. Uh, I picked up a lot about procurement and policy aspects, which later on I think was very useful for me as, as I ventured out. Uh, 99, uh, I went uh, to Yale, I got my MBA, and um, 
I think uh, 2001 was when I uh, uh, left Yale and came back. And of course, 2001 was also when 9-11 happened and the whole world changed uh, in a way. I came back and I was given, uh, my brief was at that time, the Electricity Act had just been passed and they were breaking up uh, this government department called the Department of Power into three entities. Uh, one was the Department of Energy, which was going to look after the policy aspects. The other was the Bhutan Electricity Authority, which was looking after the regulatory aspects. And the last and the biggest one was the Bhutan Power Corporation, which was looking after the utility aspects and the implementation aspects. And uh, so I was... Uh, uh, seconded to uh, BPC. Uh, I was a general manager for the customer services and distribution. Uh, and so I had to look after the distribution of electricity in uh, all the Zonkaks. At that time, we had 19 Zonkaks. Kasa didn't have electricity. And I got to travel a lot uh, during those uh, four plus years that I was in BPC. And it was a, a hugely rewarding experience, uh, starting out from you know government department to corporatizing the whole entity and putting the customer at the center of whatever we do. And uh, we worked on uh, new institutional structures, HR policies, finance, so and so forth, so much. And later on, I used the learnings from that uh, when we started RTC. So it was a, a very intense period uh, and, and so much change that was going on in the corporate sector at that time. So a lot of the things that we did at that time have become now standard in terms of, for example, uh, you know, we did this performance-based uh, incentive systems, the compacts, uh, uh, more outcome-based uh, performance appraisals, uh, those kinds of things. And um, so when I think about my time in, in BPC, and that's the time also I decided to leave uh, the civil service, I think one seminal moment or one transformative moment that happened at that time, and I think all of us would please share that, but to me, I, I really remember that was... Uh, 17 December 2005 in Tashiansi when His Majesty the Fort Gelpo announced that he would be abdicating. I, I think, of course, prior to that, uh, His Majesty uh, had decided uh, that uh, you know, we're going to have a new constitution and democracy and there was consultations going on. He was traveling all around the country. But we always thought that it wasn't real. And uh, I guess in some ways we were in denial. And we thought that, oh, that's in the future. It's really not going to happen. But I can tell you, when we heard that announcement, uh, that was a shock. Because knowing his majesty, the Fortu Gyalpo, what he says is what he will do, we were no doubt that that was what was going to happen. And that completely, I think, upended, uh, in my example, my whole uh, sort of prospects or what I thought my career would be or where I was going. And I always thought that I would finish my uh, career in the civil service. I, I wrote so also, I, I look at it funnily enough when I was applying to graduate school and you know they have many essays and one of the essays was where do you see yourself in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? I was absolutely clear I'm going to come back, work for the government and continue serving the country in that capacity and finish off as a civil servant. And I had no doubts whatsoever till that day. And that was when it changed. And what it changed was sort of the, 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 the equation of, of what you thought, what you valued. Uh, in, in the sense that we were brought up in this system where, you know, we were extremely lucky. We were given a free education, sent out 
entire education was free. And we knew that we had to come back and try and do what we could for the country. Mm. And so it was with that, uh, that idea that, that uh, we were in the civil service. And we thought that as long as we did our time, worked hard, uh, did our best, we would rise up, become a director, so on and so forth. And that's where you would finish off. And certainly this idea that now with democracy, you may have somebody as your boss, perhaps, who might be you know, less experienced, might know less than you, might not be so motivated, might not be aligned with the overall direction that we were headed in, uh, was, was, was quite scary. Like, in the sense that in the previous system, we knew that it was a very legitimate system. We had great leadership. And uh, if you put in your time, uh, you know, there's a meritocracy, and you rose up through. And I think that upended that whole apple cart in a way. And sort of the soul searching of uh, where do I go from here now? Uh, and of course, all of us, I think my peers and colleagues and my family, we all felt that you know we still need to find a way to contribute and continue and, and do things. And uh, so in some ways, that, that little bit of, of, of uh, shifting in your seats and looking for some uh, other way of, of uh, continuing the work and I can say this, that uh, then within two years of that announcement, I think many of my colleagues, my peers, my family in fact, I have uh, uh, four other siblings and three of them were in the civil service. We all left the civil service. Uh, um, but for me, uh, around 2006 then, I, I, uh, this idea of uh, starting getting into education, and uh, I think that was something that looked uh, very purposeful and, and something that uh, you could continue to contribute in a larger way. So that was when I uh, decided that uh, uh, college uh, might be a good opportunity and then put up a report to the government. 2007, we started construction. And then 2009, we opened uh, uh, with uh, 300 plus students. And so, then, so it's been 11 years last since uh, that. So uh, the introduction of democracy and yes. the education of uh, His Majesty the Fourth King, those triggered the plans in you to move from civil service to private sector, is that... Yes, yes, yes. As did, I think, a lot of people who were there in the civil service at that time. I know so many people, within a few years of that, I think something really shifted, and, and that sense that, uh, you know, uh, there are other ways uh, that, that you can is contribute. That, uh, then because uh, you felt that you could have greater impact and do greater service to the country outside the bureaucracy, or is it really the fear of the uncertain leadership? I think it may have to do with the latter. I think, you know, in the previous system, it was very clear. You worked hard, you did what you could, and, and you, you know, there's a certain meritocracy there, which was very well accepted and established. Now you're going into a new system where, you know, in the past the ministers were always appointed from the civil service. So you knew that that was your, your pathway to, you know, get to a director or wherever. In the new system, the yes. government is now so we have no idea what it might be like. Uh, so after almost a decade now into a private uh, sector, which one do you find more fulfilling? Where do you think you have achieved a lot more and achieved greater impact for the country as a civil servant in BBC or as this educational entrepreneur? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but I think it's, uh, I would say in both areas now. Because uh, while I was in government, in the Department of Power, in the PPC, uh, most of us, all of us, really gave it all. Mm. And we really believed in what we were doing. Mm. 
and uh, and the same thing here in RTC. I really believe in, in what we're doing, and when you give it a heart and soul, I think uh, you see the impact. And uh, I to say where was it more? I, I really is a little difficult. But in private sector, I suppose there is certainly greater room for innovation and creativity and your own um, hard work. You know, whereas the civil service system has a structure in place. So. Uh, moving on to that now, um, let me join this with the hot topic of our time. That's COVID-19. Now, here at Bhutan, as we always say, we created this platform to sort of further the extent of our thoughts. And these days, I think there is even more need for us to do thinking about our our existential um, status. In fact, the COVID-19 seems to have revealed to us uh, quite a lot about uh, our vulnerabilities as a human species. It has exposed our um, um, mistaken priorities, perhaps. Mm. Uh, I think we, it has also revealed to us uh, virtuous actions of uh, heroism, particularly among the frontline service providers. But it has also exposed uh, some ugly human weaknesses, such as stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> Uh, so it is a time when we see uh, humanity going through such difficult uh, challenges and you are leading a major educational institution here. As a private entrepreneur and educationist, you have the freedom also to, be, uh, to adapt to the situation. How do you look at the COVID situation in general and how have you addressed the new challenges that COVID has brought to RTC? Nice. Um. I, I was in self-quarantine for two weeks, so I've had a lot of time to read and think. And what, and on the big picture side, what really struck me is uh, how unprecedented this is. For the first time in human history, we are all experiencing this thing, something together, all countries, no one is spared. I think nothing like this has happened. In that sense, it's historic. It's, it's never happened before. and. You know, as a historian yourself, uh, you know, we tend to think of history in gradual shifts and moves, and, but it's also about these big shocks and inflection points. And I feel like we are at a, at a huge inflection point in history, and mm. we will, I think, in future be talking about post-COVID and, uh, 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 you know, mm. after COVID, uh, pre-COVID and, and after COVID, because I think the world is, is really going to change now. Mm. So that is uh, a situation where uh, I think the quicker we recognize and move and adapt to that, I think uh, the better prepared we are. That's, that's my understanding on the large scale. I think uh, on a more uh, uh, human scale or, or uh, a scale in the nation, I think we've been very lucky here in Bhutan to have been spared uh, any kind of uh, immediate suffering uh, in terms of uh, fatalities related directly to COVID, but uh, I think there is the suffering that is happening and will continue in terms of the job loss, in terms of the fear, in terms of the impacts that, that this is going to have. Mm. So uh, th that is something that uh, I am worried about. I think our leadership has done a fantastic job in making sure that we are safe. Mm. I uh, am, am amazed and I'm extremely grateful to the way His Majesty is traveling around and making sure that we're secure, making sure not just that we don't get the disease, 
but that uh, we have enough stocks, mm. that uh, we are well fed, so that we don't have to fear. And I don't think anything of this kind is happening anywhere else in the world. Mm. So in as much as we are in difficult times, we also have to really appreciate how fortunate we are mm. uh, to be in Bhutan and to be Bhutanese citizens. Mm. But if you look at the general discussion and information that we find, um, I mean, we are in a way bombarded with uh, health and hygiene related information to COVID-19, but there's very little discussion going on about COVID-19 uh, in general, yes. taking a life perspective, taking a development perspective. So you just mentioned about post-COVID or yes. going on with COVID. Yes. How do we see our way forward? We can't be all stuck in this situation forever. Yes. And RTC, I actually was having a conversation with one of your deans just a few hours ago, and you have moved all your courses online now. It yes, seems sir. like you are already functioning fully yes, in spite sir. of the COVID inconveniences. So please. Yes, please. Sir. So uh, on that point, I think when we first uh, got that uh, order from the government on uh, 6th March to, to close down uh, the institutions, we thought it might be a stopgap short-term measure. So one or two days, we were all in a state of shock. Of course, it was over the weekend, so we didn't do much. But very quickly, we realized that this may be the new normal now. So within a few days, we decided to actually embrace this change. And uh, I think I had a, a by that time, uh, you know, I was already I think, in a quarantine and uh, I had a conference call with uh, the executives there. And my message to them was that, um, you know, there have been a lot of things that we've been wanting to do, uh, which we've not been able to do. Here is the opportunity. We've been talking about online education. We've been talking about students taking ownership of their own learning, being more independent. Uh, so the message to them was that, uh, can we uh, uh, move ahead and embrace this, not as a stopgap, but as an integral part now of our business model and how we would be offering courses. So we are with the view that this may go on for many weeks and many months, and we don't know how long. So if we engage now with the challenge now and make ourselves strong, uh, then no matter what happens, there may be another wave of a pandemic or another pandemic, something else may come up, but we need to be resilient. And which means that we need to adapt uh, all our, our systems and, and uh, structures to be able to continue offering uh, uh, the, the teaching learning experience to our students. So from uh, then very early on, we formed a task force, which has been meeting now almost every day, I think they've met about 15 times, mm -hmm. and immediately identified what we need to do. So uh, one immediately was the infrastructure constraints in terms of uh, the IT infrastructure that we have. We already luckily have a Moodle-based uh, virtual learning environment, a VLE, which we upgraded. Uh, we had to do then uh, refresher training for our uh, faculty. Uh, so we bought them over a weekend because we didn't know whether there would be a lockdown. So three days, very intensive, make sure that everybody's on the same page. Uh, and then after that, monitoring and follow-up, uh, we got in touch with all our students, we uh, gave them uh, data packages, we bought data packages for all of the students, we surveyed them to find out if they had any difficulties in terms of uh, connectivity and uh, whether they had laptops or mobiles and, and intervened. So we got in touch with all the students and then, of course, there was a lot of difficulty because it's, it's a big change. Now. But I think our messaging has been fairly clear and consistent is that we are not doing this temporarily. This might be the new normal and we just need to get on with it. 
So we've now uh, managed to reach a level where I think we've learned a lot. Now. We have a dedicated group of people who are looking at what is happening outside. So one good thing about this uh, situation is that it's not just in Bhutan. Every institution is facing the same challenge. Now. So if you can research, look and learn, talk to them, uh, there are things that certain institutions are doing better than others. They have innovated. And so can we adopt those? And so we're trying to do those. And in fact, we've done uh, uh, quite a bit. Now. And we are trying to also now look ahead and say, how do we uh, 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 guarantee the integrity of the assessments? Uh, what about labs? Uh, what about uh, uh, you know other kinds of things which we had to do in person all the time? And I think we are coming up with ideas. Now. And uh, we are also documenting what we are doing so that in case there are some practices which we find uh, that are very uh, valuable, we would like to share that. And, and uh, so people don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. And I think we moved uh, uh, quite a lot. And I think uh, now we're at a stage where I remember um, maybe a week or two ago, we had uh, some difficulty in some courses being you know, fully going online. We had about 80%, but now we're at 100%. Like we're fully online. Mm -hmm. And everything is, is happening. And we are quite satisfied that uh, we're able to engage our our students, uh, of course, there are a lot of difficulties. I, I will not deny that, a lot of frustration. But I think uh, these are teething problems, and we will get to a situation where we are at least able to uh, uh, continue uh, in, in a reasonable manner. Mm. Well, that's uh, really admirable. Um, RTC has emerged as a, a leading uh, higher education institution in the country, and I'm sure you have faced so many challenges in the past. And there is this new challenge that's universal, and you are, I think, at the forefront of Bhutan's higher education institutions in addressing that. Now, I also work as an academic, and I'm familiar with the, how things works, and even in uh, very advanced, uh, prestigious Western universities that I know of, they have had this challenge. Um, now, when you look at the general higher education institution system in Bhutan, it's a very recent one, with the first university only being instituted in 2003. A lot of our colleges would still not have the pre-COVID system in place properly. Uh, and now we, we are sort of having an additional challenge of adjusting to the COVID situation, the new normal, as you put it. Um, if you were, say, the Prime Minister, who is the chairperson of the University Council, or the Vice-Chancellor, whoever is the most critical person in the University of Royal University of Bhutan. What would be the few things that you would change in the system, in the structure of the, the organization and management, in the policies, in the curriculum or assessment? Um, how would you help other colleges across the country, in other words? How would you help them learn also these new solutions to the COVID crisis? Lars, uh, I think that's a very important question, Doctor. And I would actually like to take it probably a step further, uh, and, and not just look at higher education. Um, I, I have some ideas of what immediately that we can do to alleviate some of the pressing issues in, in higher education. Maybe I'll, I'll come to that, some suggestions. But I always like to frame sort of uh, higher education within the larger ecosystem of, of education. Yes. And higher education doesn't work in a vacuum. So for, for me, uh, when I reflect back on some of the challenges we faced, I remember fairly clearly 
that uh, 2009 when we started, we had a, a different idea of how we would like to uh, deliver education, uh, get the students much more involved, make it much more student-centric, get them to be more independent. So this is there in our vision statement, to make them independent, lifelong learners who are well-rounded, responsible citizens. Yes. And so from that we draw our mandates and our mission of how we would like to treat them. And uh, so, you know, when we started, we realized very early on that the students wanted something different. They wanted to know uh, what would come in the exam. They wanted to know what the right answer to this question is. And it was frustrating because our approach was more about asking the right questions rather than having the right answer. But then they'd been conditioned for 12 years in that manner. So it almost felt like, you know, in order to get to where you are in those three or four years, you have to undo quite a lot of what was taking place. Though. So schooling so, was uh, interfering in your education in a way. <laughs> in, in a sense, the, the, the idea that we had for how our graduates would leave, uh, we had to uh, accept that they have come with a certain baggage. And now in no way am I uh, sort of uh, criticizing the system. It has evolved, it has reached a certain <coughs> stage, it has served us well. But I do wonder sometimes that maybe is it time to do some stock taking and for us to question uh, <coughs> How is it that uh, you know students have landed up? So the same question goes for, for example, maybe when somebody says, how come your graduates are not able to do certain things? Uh, so it's not just graduates, but it's the high school, the middle school, and right down. So it's, I think, partly to do with the entire education approach. And one of the things that I have, uh, I had pointed this out in the reports that we had written when we were uh, you know, submitting for uh, establishing RTC as well as throughout my all my conversations <coughs> I think fundamentally we really have to look at the system that we have where we are always looking for the right answer you know uh, where we are always uh, you know students have to it's based on textbooks memorization rote learning uh, very exam centric uh, and so our students become good at taking exams but the question is have they you know, learned what you want them to learn and uh, so we have to go back to those fundamentals because trying to do a different kind of education at the higher level becomes extremely difficult, almost impossible, uh, without addressing that. Uh, but that's a much bigger challenge, bigger issue in a way. But yes. for this specific time when we are facing the COVID problems, I'm sure quite a lot of the higher education institutions across the country would want to know new ways of doing things maybe things that RTC is already doing. And because you're in the private sector anyway, you have a free hand to do and design things, whereas mm -hmm. they're in a very uh, fixed institutional structure with lots of do's and don'ts. Yes. So are there some really important things that you can recommend in terms of institutional structure or resources, uh, things that they need to really tweak to respond to the COVID situation effectively? Less. So I, I don't know whether it's got to specifically with COVID, but even in a general sense, I think uh, as a private institution, uh, there are lots of pluses and minuses. Learned. And I'm always grateful for the freedom for us to be able to act in a certain way. And I know the constraints that the government colleges uh, face. Uh, one of the things that uh, motivates us as a private institution and that we have to always keep in mind is that we are there for the students. So that is our starting point. And I'm not sure uh, you know, uh, whether you can translate that 
the same thing for the government colleges. The government colleges exist and the students come to them because of the way the funding mechanism is. Ours is not. Ours is, we have to offer something that is of enough value that the parents and the students feel that they're making this investment. So all our thoughts and activities have to center around what value are we creating? What, uh, what do we need to do? So that means our ears have to be very close to the ground here. So we have to do so much more in that sense. Uh, and also allows us to do so much more because that's what we have to do to exist or to survive. So for example, even before the students come in, uh, we are already looking at their marks and saying, you know, yes, you admitted, but looks like you might need some help with English or math. And we do that. We have bridge courses now before they even enter the college. As soon as they enter, we have uh, orientation, we have advisors, we have uh, uh, a special course called Orientation to College Learning, which we have formulated ourselves. We have a learning resource center. Uh, we have a wider variety of, of programs. Our whole job is to actually try and support their learning and to try and facilitate and push them up as much as possible. Another view might be that other colleges might be looking at, oh, okay, who do I not let pass to the next level? That might be one way of looking at it. So you have difficult exams and uh, uh, you know, you're not so worried about whether they pass through. Our motivation, of course, is not lowering standards, but how can we help them? How can we support them? What scaffolding do we have? in our structures and the way we operate. So right from even from attendance, where you know we keep monthly track, even their parents know, and if, if they're short of attendance, they get a notice from our academic staff saying, you're liable to uh, you know, de be debarred from attending your finals because you're running short, so and so forth. So a lot of these things, which in some ways is too much handholding, but yet is necessary because that's the kind of uh, constituents uh, that we're dealing with. La. Uh, and then if they are struggling and if they have not passed the exam, then we have winter school where we again, we don't just make them sit directly for the exam, but put them through this process where they have a higher chance then of uh, passing the exam. So we have to do a lot more. We, uh, I mean, I think one area that we've done well is, is our international uh, uh, programs. Uh, I think that is one area where we have, uh, beyond actually our initial expectations, we have been very, very successful and I'm extremely pleased with that. In 2019, we had uh, you know, 45 international students on campus, which provides such good diversity for uh, the campus, the students living there. By the same token, we've sent out uh, 76 uh, students and faculty uh, to our partner institutions in Europe, the US, Japan. Uh, even as of now, uh, and, and this is a bit of a struggle. We have 18 students uh, who are on long-term programs uh, studying in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan. And of course, the difficulty now is uh, a lot of them want to come back. But but we have 18 of them out there uh, at, at no additional cost. They just pay the local tuition here, and then we do uh, these neutral exchanges. But these are the kinds of opportunities we have to afford our students to make uh, worth their while to come to RTC. And, and perhaps those are challenges that other institutions don't face. So we have to be much more... Uh, innovative uh, in that sense. Uh, yes. um, as somebody working in higher education, I would say, no, I'm not here promoting RTC or anything, but RTC has achieved many uh, outstanding uh, uh, milestones. I would say for, uh, you have got uh, the A-plus grading by Bhutan Accreditation Council in 2016. The international exposure to your students is far, far greater than any of the other colleges. And for the last three years or so, you had 
somebody uh, drop the civil service exams in one of the three categories there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, uh, um, you've been also very generous in providing scholarships. I hear there are some uh, 18% or so of students, new students, being uh, given some kind of scholarship. So all admirable. But I, I have a much bigger question for you with regard to higher education or education as a whole. Um, and that is with, uh, in relation to employability. Nice. So RTC gets some 350 to 400 new students each year, it seems, and uh, maybe about 80% of the same number graduates three or four years later. So say 300 students being turned out of your institution into the job market. And there's a lot of questions being asked by the society about the employability of these people. You could probably sort of blame this school cycle for not producing capable uh, uh, citizens, but four years in college also has uh, a major role. So when we look at the employability of students, and in RTC's case, again, I called one of your deans, and he shared that about 50% of your graduates get employed after 10 months or so, roughly. Now, even if you have to take that figure, 50%, some 150 graduates of RTC each year end up not finding a job. And probably a lot of them are going to Australia if they get an opportunity. So do we really need a four-year education just to go and do some manual work in Australia? (laughs) What are we doing to solve this issue of unemployability or not having capable graduates that are quite in the market? Yes, uh, I, I think again that's a very important question now because we do owe an explanation to our graduates, their parents, people who are funding them, that what do they get after uh, three years? Uh, are they employable? Are they not employable? And I think this is the big debate uh, that's been going around. So of course, one thing is that it's not just RTC graduates; it's graduates in general. And if you look at the the if you do uh, tracer studies for where graduates in general from whatever institutions around the country are, uh, where are they after 10 months or, or 18 months? I think we are pretty much in the same situation. Um, again, I have to come back to that, that part of, uh, you know, the way our students are conditioned and their own expectations uh, that uh, we would like them to be, uh, after they've graduated, to have a certain knowledge, skills, attitude uh, that will lead them to, uh, that will facilitate them fulfilling their, their full potential. So I think critical to that, and this is where I need to come back to education, is this aspect of uh, critical thinking, uh, being able to think for themselves, uh, being able to question, uh, so that uh, if we can build that in right from when they are young, and if there is a sort of a love of learning, so what happens when I look at the situation is that by the time they're getting to class, kids are getting to class two, three, four, five, six, some of these kids are dreading school. Uh, they, don't, they, they see school as something very difficult, that uh, an education is something that is uh, a very difficult task. Uh, why is it that that happens? Because kids, as we know, they love learning actually. They are, they're little machines that, that absorb all sounds and uh, sights and smells and touch and you know when they are two, three, four, five, they're so curious. Though. But somehow when they start going to school, the system seems to dampen that curiosity, that inquisitiveness. And then 
maybe it, it, it becomes uh, even for some uh, fear. So can we change that? Can we change it to a system where uh, we go with this sort of inquisitive, inquisitiveness that they have, sort of more inquiry-based, that uh, you allow them to follow uh, what they're curious about. Uh, and through that, you teach them some of uh, the things that you might need to teach them. And, and then uh, I'm glad that, uh, for example, we are not going, I don't know, I'm not very clear on this, but I think I read somewhere that we might not be having tests or exams up to the third grade. I think that's fantastic yeah, because we should not be stigmatizing these kids, saying you're pass or fail or you're high or low at such a young age. Like, they should just enjoy being there, exploring, loving it. And I think if they can have that, that sets a really good foundation then for them to explore. And then we build on that. Like. So I think fundamentally that's one thing that I would like to think that we, sh we, we need to start looking at that. Uh, of, of what we are doing at that level. I'm not saying that I'm not responsible, you know, at higher education, all the troubles are but not another, that. Another way of looking at this, uh, Director Tendon, is would you then want to actually uh, go into school education as well? Would you want to create feeder schools that would produce the kind of college students you want? Absolutely. I think that, to me, you can make the biggest impact mm. at that level. So, and further opening schools? Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I know how difficult it is to run one. So, but but um, in fact, that was my initial idea before the college. I, I wanted to do a school, and uh, I think the quicker you can, earlier you can get them, the more you can want them, the better you can do. So the investment that you make in the early years, uh, the payout is is much much more. So in as much as, for example, the current government has, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, the golden. Uh, I don't know how many months, 12 months, 24 months, uh, you know, where the child is you know, taking care of you, and I saw it, so and maybe even you give some uh, payouts to the mothers to take care. I think that's fantastic because those payouts further down as, you know, the 10th year, the 20th year, the, the, it pays back so many, so much more. As you move up, the, the returns are incremental. It's less and less and less. So the interventions in the early years, I think, are absolutely critical. Perhaps I'm in the wrong area, that where the returns are very marginal, but, but nonetheless I'm sort of realizing that that, that, that is where I think the, the, the payback is, is, is the greatest loss. So uh, now talking about employability further, um, to look at it from a different angle, a lot of young people, um, educated young adults from Tan are going to be saying you go to do things that they are fully capable of doing here in the country. Giving care, uh, keeping houses. Now, so it's not all down to capability or uh, skills. It's really also down to the market. Yes. So you've been leading the private sector development uh, study. And when you look at the dance economic situation as a whole, or market in general, what is going wrong that we can't employ our people? for the same job that they would do elsewhere. Is there any way we can incentivize them the same way they incentivize in Australia or the US? Well, what do we have to do to take Bhutan to that economic level that these same jobs can be done here and people can be retained? Yes. Doctor, I think there's two things here. One is that uh, uh, it comes down to what they're earning. 
Yes, so definitely for the same job they would earn much more in Australia or New York, maybe sitting some maybe they would earn so much more. And that may be the calculus when somebody decides to go. But there's another, and which has got to do with purpose and, and meaningful work. And I am pretty sure that if there was something meaningful and purposeful, something that they, where they thought they were using their talents, even for a fraction of what they might get outside, they would be willing to stay here. And I think to, to me, that is the challenge. The other one you can't prevent. If somebody really wants to make more money and feels that he has a job lined up there somewhere where he can make X amount of dollars for doing some uh, you know, low-skilled job, uh, you will find that. But I think the challenge for us is more about uh, how do we keep the others? Can we create an environment where uh, somebody who has an idea, somebody who would like to do something, he can really do it like. And unfortunately, in that report that, that uh, we wrote up, uh, I think uh, one of uh, the, the prognosis, the, the uh, statements that we have out there is that the business ecosystem that we have here in Bhutan is very burdensome and very unpredictable. And so what that means is that some young idealistic entrepreneur thinking of starting some business somewhere uh, has his bright ideas, full of energy and promise. He starts running to one office, he's sent to another office, he's told to fill this paperwork, and then he gets uh, to that area, comes back, and then suddenly he's told, no, this is not on the list, you can't do it. And it crushes his dreams. And then he tries something else. And it's just so hard to... So it, it's a very unpredictable system, it's quite burdensome. And so, when people... Is it Yes, yes, I, I think there's a lot of that. And I think one of the key proposals in the, the report was that we really need to look at this. Uh, you know, the, the framing of the, you know, this, this, a lot of people say, like, have told me in RTC, for example, is don't add to the problem by putting more graduates into the market. You already have unemployed graduates. And my retort to them is can we reframe this issue? Is it about too many graduates in the market? Or can I also reasonably ask that why isn't the economy? able to generate jobs so that my graduates can get jobs. So rather than blame the graduates, can we look at what's wrong in the economy? What is holding back uh, the creation of new enterprises that create jobs where our graduates can be employed? So you could easily frame it that way. But when you start to ask the question in that way, then you start seeing, oh, wait a minute, we need to maybe lighten the bureaucracy touch. We need to be a little lighter here in the licensing. We need to have uh, less arbitrary rules and regulations. We need to streamline our policies. Agencies need to be talking to each other. We need to get rid of all the conflicting paperwork that is necessary. So uh, I think we start seeing a path uh, if you frame the problem that way, that what is stopping? And what I would suggest, actually, is that if we do this, it's not just the, the business sector or the private sector or, or the uh, enterprises that will benefit. I think uh, the example that we pointed out in the paper is that the farmer uh, in the village, he has to run around, save a lot of paperwork to uh, you know, transfer his census, uh, transfer his land, uh, uh, get his rural timber, whatever. The burden is, is very heavy. Like. So I think if we can look to reduce that, it's not just the business sector that will benefit, but society as a whole. So the national burden, in that sense, can be alleviated if we look at what is holding us back. We have so many rules and regulations 
that are holding us back. And I think if we can look at that, that would be a tremendous uh, service to, to the nation uh, as a whole. Well, I think uh, um, as a reminder to the person who asked you to not uh, produce uh, more graduates uh, are not able to be employed in the market. I would say, even if you don't do it, Lovely Punjab University is doing it 10 times more. Yes, so yes. there's every reason for local colleges, I think, to keep students at home and give, the, give uh, if possible, a better education than a lot of the institutes that we find outside. Uh, uh, I believe, uh, not really of consent. But yes. uh, going back to the issue of the economy, I think going on to get a um, job with high financial incentives in Australia, it really makes good sense. We do have to nonetheless ask why are we not on the same standard to pay the same amount of uh, money. But even more depressing than that, that I found recently in the past few months is we have young people going to places like Iraq. And what is there in Iraq? that is more meaningful, that's better than Bhutan. It's pure desperation that have driven people from Bhutan to work in places like Iraq. So there must be something fundamentally going wrong with our economy. Europe basically saying that um, giving more freedom to the private sector would help sort of boost the economy. Uh, but how, well, what would be some practical tips to do that? And can you also sort of join the boss? If, private sector were given more freedom, how is that really going to um, result in creation of more jobs, creation of higher incomes? It's very likelihood that some wealthy businessmen will make a huge lot of profit in yes. the society as a whole, they not gain anything. Yes. Um, the, if you look at the rules and regulations uh, that uh, exist, uh, there is this idea that how to put it, uh, government knows best. So government has this uh, list of activities that you can engage in. Uh, and you see this over and over again. Right? So you see, for example, we pointed this out in the report, there's a positive list of, if, if you're going to engage in any of these activities, you don't need environmental clearance. But if you're going to engage anything not on the list, then you have to start moving through, uh, you have to start doing the paperwork and, and, and seeing whether you can get on that list. That list itself limits us then. And I think that is fundamentally the problem that we have. If you look at the, uh, um, there's a report by um, the World Economic Forum in 2018 that stated something like 65% uh, of students entering primary education today will be in jobs that don't exist right now. What it is telling you is that, you know, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be, what kind of industries are going to come. And so we have to be much more open to changes and, and, and what might impact us. Now, when you have a list that says you can only do this in the entire universe of things that can happen, you're really limiting yourselves now. So someone might have a bright idea of, I would like to do this, but it's not on that list. Uh, so you have a, a positive list in the NEC. You have the FDI uh, list. You have the CSI list. You have uh, stock listing. You, we, it is proliferated everywhere. Everybody has their own favorite positive list, and if you don't fall in those lists, then you have to jump around so much. And so our proposal is, instead of having, because we can never know, you know, in your books, you might think that this is not good for uh, the economy, or you might, uh, 
you have a judgment about that. But if someone else's books, he may think it's, it's worthwhile. And you limit yourselves sometimes by having those lists. So the idea was uh, that we work with Muslims and you actually have a negative list. So what would you not like? So you don't like gambling, tobacco, arms and ammunition, uh, so and so forth. Be very clear. Nobody ventures into those areas. But in other areas, generally, you have a liberal approach. Yes, if it is very unknown, then you might have a sort of a sandbox approach. You play with it, and then you develop regulations as you learn. But not a blanket. If you're not on this list, you can't do it. I think that is extremely limiting, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why we don't see uh, growth in... So there's a new business model comes in, people are doing certain things with the new technology, and then you want to do something with that, but then you're told, no, no, this is not on the list, and you don't know about this. So the, in, in, that, in that sense, the mind of bureaucrats uh, will go back to what is written. If it's not there, black and white, you will not be allowed. Or they don't want to take a call because you know, they may be exposed to uh, you know, something goes wrong. So I think those kinds of dynamics come into play, which uh, when you add all of these little things up, then it builds you a system which I come back is, is very burdensome and unpredictable. And which is why perhaps we have not seen the growth of the private sector in the way that we would like. So for the last three decades, we've been told uh, that the private sector is the engine of growth, but we don't see it happening. And this was even before COVID. This was before COVID, yes. So now with COVID, we have even um, additional burden and additional challenges. And I think we are taking really vulnerable times. Um, and <laughs> during the conversation so much, I didn't know it's almost an hour. Um, but as we go through these really uh, challenging times, one of the most important things that uh, um, that expert tells us is that we need a strong immune system. So Rashu, what do you do to keep your immune system strong? Uh, to, how, what do you do to go after your body and mind, emotions, and spirituality, and share, how you keep yourself fit, and how to do things. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think I've been very lucky. That I was brought up loving uh, sports, and, and uh, I love the outdoors, so I, I'm very active. Anybody who knows me knows I'm very active. So I love playing sports, I love uh, cycling, running, football, golf, uh, swimming, so and so forth. So uh, physical activity, I think, is a big part of uh, who I am, what I do, what I love. And that really keeps me, uh, I think, quite healthy. Uh, I also like reading, meditating, reflecting. Uh, I think these activities help me also to center myself. And uh, so I think mentally, uh, also I feel, um, you know, reading, that's something that always brings you back. Uh, especially, I like uh, reading some uh, some of the spiritual books, uh, self-help books, also um, some of them. Uh, they help you to think and reflect. And um, I, I don't know. I don't do much else. I don't, in particular, say I need to be healthy and take care of my health. But I feel healthy uh, because of I'm always busy also. So I don't. Uh, I'm, I, I can't find time to. I can't remember the last time I said I'm, I'm bored. <laughs> so maybe I'm just busy. So keeping active. Yes. Sir. Uh, so, so thank you, Rajiv, for that advice. And of course, uh, this is not to substitute for the health advice we get on how we should do physical distancing and also wash our hands with soap regularly and so forth. Now, with that, uh, let's take questions from the online audience. 
question we have from Russell Shenton Noble. Can 21st century education be like learning of true nature of one's consciousness and self that exposing too much of concepts and ideas of what schools, colleges, and institutions are focused now? So, uh, totally, you have to paraphrase that. This is more like your type of jargon. You might be familiar with it. If I understood it correctly, should 21st century education be more about self inquiry rather than ideas and philosophies being uh, imposed on you by the colleges and schools? Yes. I think it should be both. I, I really don't think these are separate and uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, one thing I would say is that sometimes the inner journey is, is much more personal and it also has to be experienced. Uh, in education institutions, we are sometimes taught it is uh, you know, the guru or the teacher or through the books. Uh, it's a learned kind of a wisdom, but I think uh, the inner journey is, is much more experiential. Without going through that, I, I find it hard to believe that uh, we can gain that kind of wisdom. So if you look at all the, the great teachers, uh, uh, you know, Buddha himself, or Christ, or Muhammad, or whoever have you, they have gone through this personal, integral to their philosophy or what they preach is also the inner transformation that they have gone through. And I think all of us have to go through that in order to earn that, that wisdom. So I think there's something that the situation is set up where we learn something in a formal education setting, but the inner journey, I think that is uh, much more personal. Maybe some might need a guru to help them through that, others can do it on their own. Uh, but I think this might be a better question for the doctor. <laughs> I can certainly augment to what uh, you have shared. And that is, I think, one, for sure, inner reflection or self-reflection is fundamental to yes. education. But a lot of the quality of school education should contribute to us better astuteness in self-inquiry. So I think uh, they feed each other. Yes. And uh, especially, I must say, the COVID situation has given us a fantastic opportunity for self-reflection. Lots of people around the world, I think, are going through very serious existential contemplation right now. Yes. Because it has really the bear of vulnerabilities. And so everyone, I would request, would, uh, to take time to sit back and sort of look inward and Contemplate a bit, practice mindfulness, and then also boost immune system. Absolutely, absolutely. The second question is from Florian Bergesio. The recent virus outbreak has highlighted the interdependence of economies across the world. Here in Europe, immediately fears arose a possible break in supply chains, most notably in food. As I understand, even in Bhutan, the chilies are becoming increasingly expensive right now, together with various challenges in importing other raw materials. This points to questions of self-sufficiency and orientation of the job market. What do you think the scope or reach of higher education should be in Bhutan? Yes. Uh, for you, Uh, I, I'm almost honest, I, I'm not very clear what exactly the, the preface to that question and the question itself slightly... Uh, Is it disconnected? Uh, so, the second 
part. Well, I can understand the question, but then uh, kind of related to the first part. I'm not sure uh, which of these are the sufficiency and Again, it might be. Uh, I think this is Florence was an internet villain. Okay. So hello, Florence. Um, and he is basically trying to point out the interconnectivity of the whole world, and then the scope of education. So should maybe the interconnectedness that the world has, uh, which has become very stark uh, today. Should they come under this uh, scope of higher education in the world? Or is it so just building skills or university capacities? What should be the scope of higher education be in a slightly broader way? Understand the to me, um, not just higher education, but education itself, the way I view the purpose of education uh, is twofold. One is to, to make you able to learn for yourself, so to become a lifelong learner. And that actually, you don't even need to get to higher education. I think if you have literacy uh, skills and numeracy skills by the time you are in the fifth or sixth grade, you can actually, if you're motivated enough, learn on your own. You don't need any more. Uh, so, so that's, I think, one fundamental purpose. The other is really to get you to think critically, think for yourself. And there you may need some help for up and maybe uh, ideas of, of uh, you know, different strands of philosophy, different lines of thought, uh, to be able to help you figure out yourself. And uh, at the end of the day, I think, uh, if we can do these two things, which is get you to become a, a lifelong learner, and get you to think for yourself, to think critically, I think to me that, in a nutshell, would be for me the, the value or the proposition of what education is there for. Uh, but, but these two things don't necessarily include creating a good human being. People can be high from the people can be also but still be very selfish, very antisocial persons. So how would you, in an education system, also address this issue of creating good human beings, good citizens. And perhaps this is what I was referring to. This is understanding of humanity. I think that's a fantastic question. So, I might say think critically, but I would maybe just limit it to just to think uh, the, the value of a good education. And to think means you decide what you think, how you think. You decide what, what, what you have in your mind. So in that sense, it also defines who you are. So in as much as uh, it's not just about uh, ideas, but it's also that awareness of how you're thinking, what are you thinking, or I'm thinking in this way or that way. So a certain mindfulness and awareness. And to know that we have certain ways of thinking, that we have certain default settings. Uh, I, I, I was reading this uh, speech given at a commencement. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it's called, this is, called this, is, this is Water. I don't know if you've heard of that. So this is a quick story. Uh, there are two fish swimming in the sea. And uh, two young fish swimming in the sea. All the fish swims by and passes them by. And he looks back at the two of them and he says, Hey boys, how's the water? And the fish swim on. Uh, 
after a while, the two young fish look at each other. One looks at the other and says, What the hell is water? So, the, the idea of this story is that sometimes we are so steeped in our own thoughts or the default settings that we don't even realize how we're thinking. And uh, to me, uh, I think this is what the value of a good education is that also it makes you aware of that, wait a minute, I am like this. This is, I don't have to be like this. I can believe what I choose to believe, not just what was handed down to me. And so when I say critically thinking, then you add that part of being critical about what was handed down to you, what you were told, what you read, and you make your own truth there. And I think if you can do that, that is then really knowing how to think. And that is the value of a good education. So to get away from this default settings that we always have all the time that we wear around us, and you don't even know how we react sometimes. So in as much as the fish might not even know that they're living in water, I think that's it. So it also calls for then mindfulness and how we treat others and how we view ourselves, self-awareness of, when I do this, I impact somebody else like that. So to me, that is part of that, that thinking. So it comes very much in, in that aspect. Next question. Uh, so next we have four questions on COVID-19. The first one is, what are the key areas private entrepreneurs need to focus at this hour pre-course, during course, and post-course of COVID-19 situation to successfully sail through the wave of a pandemic situation? And the next one is, have you given heart to the possibility that COVID-19 is here to stay? And how are we going to deal with it and live with it? The third one is, what suggestions would you have for the COVID-19 library services? How are the faculty and students able to access the teaching learning resources at the moment? And the last one is, COVID-19 situation in Bhutan have already taken the physical school now in the context of Google Classroom and in the e-learning. How do you foresee this throughout this year, 2020, if the COVID-19 situation doesn't improve? So, um, that's all, all got to do with the COVID-19. Uh, private sector and education. So, perfect questions for you. <laughs> so, so uh, anyway, I'm, I'm not an expert on uh, the COVID-19 situation. I'm not a healthcare expert or anything. But my, from what I've read, uh, uh, the situation seems to be that uh, it's something that is going to last for a while before a vaccine comes in and I think until there's enough herd immunity in the system so that it doesn't uh, uh, destabilize uh, whatever activities that are happening. But that's quite a long ways out. But in the meantime, I think from what I could tell, the critical um, uh, pressure on the infrastructure is when it comes to intensive care. So for example, right now in Bhutan, we're very lucky. There is actually no pressure on the healthcare system as such in terms of like what you're seeing in Spain or Italy or the US. So there's, there's no you know, filling up of the ICU beds and they're not in the beds and people are dying. We don't have any of that, uh, very fortunately. So I think the calculations that a lot of countries are doing is seeing how many ICU beds are there and working backwards to see what 
level of social distancing and all of these interventions are required in order to keep infections at a certain level because uh, there is an understanding that you cannot get it down and you can only uh, kind of continue to a certain level by increasing or decreasing the amount of uh, you know, social distancing and lockdown and other measures that are there. So how tight is it uh, and, and how loose, how much can you let go? So I think each country has to find its own containment uh, strategy of how much can it afford to do. And perhaps at some point in return, we might need to come up with a framework that says that when we go beyond this many infections or this many cases, uh, we have to completely lock down. And when it goes below that, then we can loosen up. I don't know whether those kind of calculations are there in the framework that our policymakers are looking at. But it seems like in other countries there is this kind of a strategy. And what it suggests is that this is not going away immediately. Even if you get a handle on the situation, it may come back in a few months, and again then you tighten, and again it may come back. So in that sense, I think this is a situation, even if it's not COVID-19, maybe some other new novel coronavirus uh, that might come in, and, and you may have another wave. So we have to build systems that are now resilient to these kinds of waves. So this is what I was saying when I was talking about the new normal. So our systems, uh, whatever we're talking about, needs to anticipate those kinds of ebbs and flows uh, that might come out of that. Um, yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, the first question was about um, private enterprises. How do they manage pre-COVID, during-COVID, and post-COVID? So I think that really depends now on the nature of the enterprise that you're in. And, and uh, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all uh, response. So some uh, enterprises will thrive, are thriving. So you're looking at, for example, delivery services. You know, the orders have gone through the roof. And then you're looking at some situations where if you require close contact, those things are closed off, the, the theaters and, uh, you know, where people together in, in, in large uh, numbers. So each will now have to look and review uh, and see how they can keep those kinds of social distancing norms that may keep coming in now uh, in the future. How can they alleviate? So business models will definitely be impacted and they have to change. And those that adapt will survive. Those that don't uh, will have to find other ways of serving their customers. So really, I don't think there's a simple, single answer on that front. Where possible, enterprises must adopt digital tools. Because we are in the digital era. A lot of people still are perhaps uh, shying away from digital tools. But for most businesses, I think digital tools manage um, the enterprises to keep alive and perhaps even flourish. Yes, yes. And then uh, on the library and teaching, virtual learning uh, issues. Yes. The question is about how the lab so, uh, so, for example, at RTC, in the VLE, a lot of the stuff is posted there uh, for the reading material. And then we also, uh, I'm not sure of the technical details, but we are part of this network, this uh, high-speed network within the country, the TrueGren, which allows institutions to access each other's uh, resources. And uh, uh, the libraries, uh, the resources that we have, uh, technically I'm not sure how it's working in, in, in RTC, but I do know that uh, a lot of the materials that we had, for example, we had to redeploy a lot of people to just photocopy and uh, put in the database to make available what are the most uh, uh, 
required uh, material. Um, we have access to international uh, library uh, databases, and uh, normally for that you have to come into the library, the library will help you, they help you with research and things like that. But uh, I'm not entirely sure about uh, students directly accessing some of those uh, resources. Uh, next, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in practical insights and tips. Practical insights and tips. So I have two questions today. The first one is going back to what you said earlier on um, in this session, the importance of asking the right question. So my, my first question to you is, given the fact that you hire a lot of people, what is the most important question you regularly ask when you're interviewing people? What's, the, what's that key question that you always invariably ask people because you know that this person is going to be on your staff for the next two, three, four, or five years? Mm -hmm. So that question that helps you get to a comfort level that this is the right person for your team. That's my first question. Okay. My second question is, um, many of us, and I speak now as a bureaucrat within the United Nations, sometimes we, we self-censor ourselves too much. We are a little bit too careful. But of course you are an accomplished um, leader here in this country. How do you get around the self-censoring that, that may sometimes hold you back? How, how do you get? How do you allow yourself to be braver than you actually want to be sometimes? And in terms of asking the right question, saying things that maybe make some people feel a little bit uncomfortable. So the second question is, how do you get beyond self-censoring? Okay. Uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, um, with regard to the one question. I don't think there's a single question. Often you can't ask it directly. So you have to find a way to, so for example, what I look out for, probably two or three, two or three things. In their history, in what they've accomplished, in the way they've reached where they have reached, are, are they improving, are they learning? I think to me that is fundamental. And which is why we have it described in our vision also at RTC, lifelong learning. I think to me, that is extremely important. If a person is not looking to learn or not looking to improve, then I think he has very limited uh, uh, you know, scope for, for employment with someone like me. He has to be looking to improve himself, which means he has to be looking to engage, looking to be challenged, because learning is challenging, it's not easy. So if you have shown a consistent history record of learning, I think that is fundamental. And often you have to look at the experience and the record history of that person. I think the second would be down to integrity. Uh, and again, you can't ask that question, because if I ask you that question, Jerry, do you have integrity and you want the job, you're sure to say yes. So again, that is a more difficult question. And often, even through an interview, you cannot get that. That is something that you learn, maybe, perhaps, when you engage with that person. So I think these two, I mean, there are a few more, but I would say these two are fundamental. If you cannot trust that person, and if that person is not willing to learn, uh, then I think uh, you're going to have a very difficult time. On, on the other hand, 
if there's a person, even without a high flying degree or so-called education, if he's willing to learn and if he has integrity, he can reach whatever level he or she wishes. That's my evaluation of when I'm looking to employ somebody. Uh, and there are other areas, but I think these are probably two. I just keep it at that right now. Uh, the other question about self-censorship. Uh, um, I think, Jerry, within the context that we operate, there are ways and means in which uh, we communicate with each other. And I think particularly in our context, uh, there are certain expectations of how we communicate at certain levels, you know, laterally or uh, vertically. And I think we have to respect that also, uh, you know, so your place, uh, where you are. But of course, you want to make an impact. You do want to communicate uh, whatever your uh, message is. And in that sense, it may sometimes feel like uh, self-censorship that you don't say everything. But I think also we are a society that people also do read between the lines and they do understand also. So you may ask this level of question and they know you're actually trying to get there. So you don't need to say that in order to get there also sometimes. So part of it is that I think cultural dynamic that we have, well, he said this, but he actually means that. And it might sound like self-censorship, but it's also a, maybe an astute way of getting there. Because if you go straight there, then maybe you'll just get, uh, you know, uh, you might not be heard at all. So I think a certain ways and means to get your message across there. Uh, right form of speech. <laughs> uh, my final question uh, is uh, Bhutan Dialogues offers uh, two books, uh, The Token yes. of Gratitude. Uh, I want to ask you which two books you choose. Yes. Or if you have other titles that you would want to recommend oh, okay. the audience to read, here are two books okay. that I think probably selected by you. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So uh, the first one is this Why Don't Students Like School? And uh, I, uh, I read some other books and I had uh, uh, read some references and reviews to this, so I've been trying to get hold of this book, but not so easy, so I thought uh, maybe UN House might be able to <laughs> be more efficient in getting it. The second one is uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I really enjoyed his books, uh, Sapiens, uh, Homer Deus, which I haven't finished yet, mm. but uh, very insightful, and uh, I was looking forward to reading this, especially as we look ahead and try and, and, and think about uh, future challenges uh, that might arise. Now. So these are the two books which I, I requested for. Uh, and I really don't have much to say about them because I haven't read them. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so with that, uh, it brings this session to a close. Uh, we want to thank uh, Director Genzin for uh, uh, giving time and coming here to join us. Um, I normally end the session with a Bhutanese or Buddhist piece of wisdom. Uh, given the COVID situation today, uh, where we really need to look after our body, but also look after our mind, which is uh, very um, central to the theme of today's session, education and enterprise. I've got Shantideva, my favorite author, uh, who in his book Bodhicharya Avatara, he writes, a person troubled by illness is not fit for work. A mind disturbed by confusion cannot do any work. So 
in these unprecedented times. Stay safe. Take good care of your body and mind. Thank you.